Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today, my guest is a man named Seamus McNally. Seamus is a director, producer, writer, and an acting coach working with actors on shows like Orange is the New Black and Black Mirror. More recently, he has pivoted to working on a documentary film about a tragic miscarriage of justice within the Spanish legal system. It's a really crazy story. In this episode, we talk about both his experience as an acting coach, some great tips there, and also about his revelations while creating his new documentary. So without further delay, please enjoy this episode with Seamus McNally. So, hey, Seamus, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely, man. Yeah, I, I came across your work a little while back, and, and I think what you do is really awesome, and I'd love to just uh, you know share some of your experiences with the audience here. So, I mean, first off, uh, what got you into the industry that you're in now in the first place? Um, well, I guess, I guess it wasn't any great act of bravery initially. Um, I was really kind of a, a pretty adrift street kid, I would say, kind of. I was really kind of a punk. Uh, yeah, high school dropout, wandering, party boy kid, and traveling a lot, and I, I started just really kind of adrift in every way. <laughs> just kind of, I thought I wanted to be a ship's captain for a while. And uh, I, I actually, yeah, I dropped out of high school and, and, and just found myself working in the, the boat boats up and down the eastern seaboard. And then, you know, finally I was like, wow, this is really rife with extreme alcoholics and drug addicts and directionless people. And um, I'm not having enough fun. <laughs> to justify this path uh and i i sort of stumbled into what was kind of somewhat a family business my father was an actor and he's never a very successful one at that but i just kind of for lack of a anything else really at the time it just seems so random i just kind of stumbled into it and then a little ways into it i thought wow this is pretty profound stuff. And I, I kind of never really came up for air. Um, not that I remained an actor for all that long. I, I, I always fell, I was in love with studying, um, which a lot of my friends who were, went on to be much more successful professional actors, they're always like, you know, be careful of staying in class too much. You know, you study for a while, but then you gotta get the hell out there and learn what you're doing in the field. And I was kind of always like the opposite. I was like, you know what? I'm really digging the room where the process happens and where the craft keeps reinventing itself. And I fucking hate show business. And I hate every the audition process sucks and material sucks. And why are we killing ourselves to support these garbage scripts? 
what the fuck? Let's. So I really kind of, I was always a bit more of a teacher, uh, at least more of a kind of really into being in the classroom. And then also started early on in my early 20s even, started developing this fast, this uh, faculty and certainly appetite to develop material and just make better stuff. We're, we're, you're, now we're living in a time where there's a lot of great material floating around. But in the early 90s, I'd say even late 80s, early 90s, the era I'm talking about, it was a little harder to come by great material, especially as a young starting actor, you know. So what happened was I've, I always um, – I, I started a development company with a couple of producer, lawyer types, and we started buying the film rights to books and stage plays and, yeah, just driven with the desire to create better, better material, better scripts. I kind of pushed that. While and, and then we ended up selling that company, and I kind of that was a bit of an end of an era for me, um, where we just you know it, I just hit a certain point where I was like, well, I don't really want to be a development guy anymore. Enough of this, and I really segued into directing, and my teaching and coaching of actors was really an extension of that. Um, <laughs> yes, that's like in a kind of rambling career path it's just yeah that's sort of how that happened um i'm i and now i'm really a, a many years in committed filmmaker and fortunately i've had quite a bit of success as a teacher and as a coach of actors and directors really for a wide array of film and television projects so that's that's my world i'm really i'm fortunate enough to be working at the top of my game pretty much uh top of the field doing that work and uh yeah that's awesome how am i doing awesome. so far doing fantastic yeah. fantastic All so right. let, let's talk about some of that work they've done with uh some of the uh more noble tv shows how how did you start to work with shows like orange is the new black and vinyl uh, alex Haley's roots like where, where did you uh, yeah. Well, that... it's. Um, I mean, I, first of all, my my own teachers that I worked with. I worked with one great. I think before even getting into that, I would say, because it's really it's it's easiest leading in. You know, circling back around the people who I was studying with. Um, the I, I was my first. I really had two primary mentors, and they're both a bit unusual. One is a woman named Gloria Maddox who was an incredible teacher of improv and one of the mainstay teachers at Michael Howard Studio in New York, which was a great place to be, especially then. Um, it still is. There's a lot of great teachers knocking around there. But Gloria had originated a lot of Sam Shepard's early work and uh, who Ed Norton worked with her at the time. There's a lot of great actor a lot of my contemporaries were really killing it in her class but gloria contracted als at quite wow. a young age she was still in her mid-50s yeah it was and uh it was horrendous in many ways and so enlightening in others we all just basically nursed her to her last breath <laughs> um and learned so many life lessons but a little before that happened she at one point just stood up in the middle of class one day just stopped class. She was on a new medication. She just said, all right, um, I can't do this anymore. Stop two women doing a, a scene and said, I'm sorry to stop, but I have to leave now. Seamus, take over. 
I guess I'm the only Jameis in the room. I thought, okay, I guess I guess that's my cue. And I literally just kind of heartbroken, just took, moved up and sat in her seat and started teaching. I was about 26. And years later, I met this guy named uh, John Osborne Hughes, who's a British theater director. And he's the other person whose terminology I draw from a lot. Um, he's a, a genius director and teacher himself. He works out of London, but he works on a real long form training technique. And he, te- he teaches people for years. He really takes years to get your head around what he does. It's very scientific. So I worked with both of them. And, um, and then, as I was saying, as I started directing stuff and really started focusing on directing my own material, uh, I would just hire the best actors I could possibly, I could possibly work with, the best actors I could get to, and really, not necessarily the most famous, but I would take the casting really seriously of these little shorts that I would do, and television pitches that I was pulling together at the time. And I, I reached out to a few people who we just created this incredible rapport because not a lot of directors, especially directors who aren't wildly established, not many of them are great actors directors. And at that point I just had a faculty for it. So Nick Sandow was one of those people who I got to do a couple of short pieces with that were both really pretty, pretty awesome. I'm pretty proud of the work that we did together. And it was just, and then I ended up moving around the block from him and he ended up getting his, he was just, you know, one of these kind of late blooming successes as an actor. He's always been a genius. Everybody knew him as a character actor kicking around New York. But then he landed the role of the warden in Orange is the New Black. And it was just kind of a no brainer for him to call me. He's like, James, can you just like help me get this shit together? I know you're coaching these other people. I'm like, can you just work with me? I'm suddenly getting reams of material all the time. It's just really helpful. So I started working with Nick. And before you knew it, I was coaching every single episode of Orange is the New Black. <laughs> and I was just totally up to our, my gills with him and trying to help develop that character. And then, incidentally, other actors from the show. Uh, Call, I got a couple calls from other people playing much lesser roles, but I got to, you know, so that's just one show. Uh, so I was never necessarily employed by the production company or the show itself. It was always featured talent in the show. Um, another one of my key clients and just real, a really good friend and an actor I respect a lot is a fellow named Babs Olusan Mokun. He's a gentleman of Nigerian descent, but son of a diplomat and lived all over the world. He's a very worldly, interesting guy. Incidentally, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu master also, like runs his own dojo and stuff. He's a freak. He's an absolute freak of nature, but a really strong actor and a wonderful guy. And so he's another one through Babs, really. You know, I ended up working with Black Mirror and ended up working with Roots and working him with Babs through the whole screen test process, which got him into Roots. And uh, yeah, he's a real badass working actor. He's always, he's always in that top. He's a very specific um, type. So when he's right for a job, very few other people are right for it. And so, you know, so he works all the time and I work with him all the time. And uh, yeah, 
so uh, that's the, the, these. It's really through a few great actors who I have long-standing relationships who have opened the door to all this other material, and then people start looking at your resume and they're like, "Holy shit!" And then so now I'm I get hired by the National Acting Union of Denmark, and I'll do these weekend intensives. That's really what I do now is three to five day intensives where I usually work with fairly experienced actors and directors and they come in good and leave better. <laughs> That's, <the game. laughs> That's awesome. You know? Yeah. So what are some of, what do you think are some of like the most effective methods that you teach or what makes your, uh, you know, coaching so effective? Well, I tell you, um, what is it? Why is it? Why, what is what is the basis of my technique? Um, I would say, excuse me, checking power on my uh, device here, oh, sure. making sure that I don't fade out. No. Um, so, what what do we do? I tell you, I really I've boiled this down. Once again, as I was saying earlier, this John Osborne Hughes fellow who is, uh, you know, brilliant teacher. And I've, I've sort of – this guy has this encyclopedia of terminology that he instilled in all of us who passed through his technique and, you know, really went for it and stuck out this three-year program with this man. Um, but I always found – wouldn't it be great to be able to, you know, transfer some of just some of the these these techniques and these principles onto people? But I've never had the time to do it. I'm always completely under the gun. People call you generally in a state of emergency, and <laughs> they just generally do. There's very little time. So what what I've done is kind of develop my own shorthand for delivering work that took me three years to learn so it's really because of that it has really kind of become its own thing just by virtue of necessity um so what i do the however what i've come to define it the the key principle really underneath it all is stillness i work with um, I don't like to use the word meditation a whole lot because it often evokes a whole lot of Buddha, yoga, levitation. Uh, I don't know what. People have some spiritual baggage when they hear some idea. So, But really, stillness exercises that really become um, instilled discipline for managing one's attention. And... Um, it's this work that is the most it's really all about helping people raise their level of awareness while they're rising to the incredible demands of bringing a an exciting story to life uh, it's really hard to do it's really hard to be in your body and be who and where you are and simultaneously create another person's thinking and another person's experiences that may be wildly different to your own at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's it's oh, yeah. underrated how absolutely fucking impossibly hard it is to do really well 
a lot of people can take a swing at it and get away with it. But to do it exceedingly well is just so hard. <laughs> yeah, I would, really I would love to know more about that stillness that you're talking about. What what is what are the challenges that most people that you work with face when trying to cultivate that skill? I I would say cell phones and and caffeine. Yeah. And all, I'm actually not even kidding. We are living in an age where we are conditioned and ever increasing our conditioning of ourselves to have our attention spread out all over the place and live in the state of constant hyper-connectivity and hyper-involvement in the world and everyone we know all the time. And it's just... um, it's, it seems like it becomes increasingly difficult to do. And so, you know, it really is very basic meditation exercises that I walk people through. I'm pretty insistent upon people doing it for, especially anyone who's involved in one of my workshops. We're doing it five and six times a day. Um, the first time in the morning for a half an hour, 20 minutes. And then we start training people to do it for five minutes and for one minute and for 10 seconds so that we have ways of just constantly tapping that underlying connection that we have to our sort of limitlessness that exists beneath our visible thinking. And so by continuing and kind of committing for to, uh, committing ourselves to having all of our creativity emerge from that facet of our consciousness, something shifts. It's very deep. There's both at one point a, a real letting go and yet simultaneously accessing a whole new kind of world of impulses. <laughs> and it yeah. just happens. It's not, it's not nothing too magical about it. It just happens, but I've just, because I've been working at it and because I learned it from the places I've learned it, I've figured out how to just apply it very specifically to this craft. I think that's really awesome. I, I feel like while it's something that you're coaching actors on, I could imagine a lot of people could use some of those same <laughs> exercises just themselves. You know, if, yeah. if it's cell yeah. phones and attention and everything, that's certainly a problem for everybody. Yeah. But you're not kidding. Would you, yeah. Would, would you be able to share uh, any of those exercises that, that you have, uh, you know, the people you work with practice? Sure. Well, I mean, basically, before, I mean, rather, just, I, I'm trying to imagine uh, people listening to a podcast where I now, what, where, we, where everything goes absolutely silent for the next five minutes. So I'm going to try to figure out how to communicate this to you in a way that that's not what's happening. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> so one principle, this, the one that kind of comes after stillness, I think we all have moments in the day where we can connect to that silence and stillness that's actually beyond the furthest sound you can possibly pick up. And there, there's a point of our in our attention. It's it's actually it's just about it's just about resting your attention on the silence beyond all sound, literally physically beyond the the, the furthest sound you can hear right now. And when you rest your attention on that point, it becomes apparent that there is a certain 
identical silence and stillness that exists within. And when we encourage our attention to have one of its two feet, really, uh, two primary facets planted there, it just sort of the work that just does itself. Falling still is falling still. Um, the the principle that I think is a a real game changer is the next principle that we call presence. What I have come to call presence, which is really just about uh, what we call upon to keep our attention from being in the past or in the future, rather than than preparing ourselves or bracing ourselves for some eventuality that's coming our way based on past experiences and past traumas and past victories. Um, this is how we spend most of our day, frankly, is with our attention largely, if not rooted, very much informed by a past or present, excuse me, a past or future complex. And the way to overcome that, what actors need to do, and frankly, anyone who needs to publicly present, I have worked with people, I can't really talk a lot about the people in the political world that I've worked with, but I have done this work for pretty prominent people in um, holding public office as well. Um, our present attention, only, and the only thing that's really happening is what's happening right this moment. And awareness being really just the ability to watch one's own thoughts. That is how I've had it defined in a way that was most effective to me. So, uh, yeah, these are some of the early principles. It's really cool to watch people apply this stuff that sounds kind of little, a little fortune cookie philosophical shit to me when I hear myself talking about it. It's great to see people um, having to deliver... <laughs> Uh, having to deliver on high stakes narrative script uh, story driven character driven material and having to create the tension and create the bring all the elements to life to really make a, a scene cook and to watch these principles actually apply in in, in the in a way that they're most needed it's, it's really uh, it kind of blows my mind every time so uh yeah, that's, so there's that. That's really cool. I love those tips too. To sort of, I like the idea that you can't, you, you physically don't have the bandwidth to think about no. anything else if you're focused no, that's, on senses. Yeah, that's what we're always doing. We're always trying to mind fuck ourselves out of the panic that emerges when we have to deliver, deliver. And so, how is it that we can just be here and now and acknowledge that most of our. <sighs> Most of our stress, our panic, our anxiety, our performance anxiety, all that stuff comes from imaginary problems and imaginary concerns. And yes, it's, it's a great thing to do to just saturate the mind with things that are actually really happening right here and now that are very simple that, um, yeah, it just gives access to a greater part of our creativity, you know, when we're not, we're not just tripping and dealing with our adrenaline racing through our system for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> it kind of allows the, that same surge of adrenaline to reemerge in a way that actually serves what you're doing. <laughs> you yeah. know, you actually find yourself having 
character adrenaline rushes rather than an actor or <laughs> going through that or putting themselves through that. I've been <clears throat> called upon of late to uh, get involved with a documentary, uh, which is not my usual bag whatsoever. And so I'm finding myself having to apply a lot of what I have learned and cultivated to a very different arena with a very different end in sight. That's, that's sort of what I want to touch on next. I mean, first off, you know, given your background, what, what made you uh, or compelled you to take on the challenge of doing something sort of outside of your typical wheelhouse? Yeah, well, it was a little, I really had to think it through, mostly because I, I was contacted. Um, basically, this, this story came to me, and uh, this opportunity availed itself. Um, and it was really fascinating, and I had a, um, a passing relationship at least I had some I had some familiarity with uh, with 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 this one person who was um, whose family was subject to this crazy situation, and um, I thought about giving it away and passing it along. Um, I think what it was it was a combination of things. I think what what drove me to take on this documentary, which is incidentally a doc about. Um, it didn't start out this way, but what it has become is a documentary about what is basically a systematic frame job of this one family who have been taken advantage by a couple of rogue people within the Spanish criminal justice system, specifically the Canarian criminal justice system. And it's about a, a family that were falsely uh, under false claims and unsubstantiated suspicions uh basically illegally for all intents and purposes illegally extradited and put in prison in gran canaria without having any evidence put against them any official charges put against them um and certainly no trial or no trial in sight, all under this crazy-ass Spanish loophole that is known as pretrial detention. <laughs> it's very un-American for us to wrap our heads around this, but, and it's also very counter to the mandates of the EU, but somehow they've managed to still remain part of the European economic community here, the, uh, the European Union, and, uh, and keep these medieval ways of handling their justice system in place. And it's shocking. It's terrifying. And I can't go into crazy detail about it, but that's what, so, but I find myself now dealing with traumatized family. We're talking about a, a, a man and a woman in their late 60s and early 70s, nerdy academic types, you know, who are working, you know, just not hardened anything, really vulnerable people. And then their 30-something son who are all thrown in like really heavy 
prison situations for for two years and two and a half years without anything backing it up. And so I'm dealing with these people, and I'm also dealing with a good monkey barrel of lawyers and uh, press people and um, forensics people and digital expert witness people all shredding the case against these people. I mean, it really started out on my part as an investigation, like how this can't be all smoke and no fire. What are these people? And it was almost like a whodunit, what's underneath this? And, I, and what happened, you sort of started, we started lifting veil after veil until we realized, no, this is a fucking frame job by a broken, corrupt, and evil, <laughs> a few evil people within a, a, a really uh, dysfunctional system. And so that's just inadvertently what it's becoming a portrait of. Wow. That is quite the story. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Do you uh, have an idea of when the documentary will be out? No. (laughs) (laughs) Story is still unraveling? It is still unraveling. I mean, we could. We have enough. Uh, There's enough information in place to... uh, there's enough information in place. We ha- we sort of have the footage. We need to do it. But yes, I I would I would love to see this story bend even further. It's already a matter of time before it, it just keeps going more and more their way. Um, meaning the EU is now involved. It was actually the the international courts that started putting pressure on Madrid, saying, "What what the hell's going on down there?" Why are these people? I mean, we know about your whole crazy pretrial detention trip that we don't support, but like two years, people who are suspects without any more than being sus, like what the hell's going on? They they had to lift this weird veil of secrecy, and and then they when they realized there's nothing behind, they were just, just forced to let these people go. So now they're on this kind of home arrest, this island. It's very odd. It's very it's very odd. And I'm, I would like to see things. It's a matter of time before the scales start tipping more and more in support of these families, these people who are just really political pawns. They're political pawns in a much bigger story, and it's becoming very obvious that that's what's happening. Wow. But I, it's been a hell of a journey just learning about, about the world, about the world. It's been a hell of a journey learning about how privileged and small my perspective is. I thought I thought I knew a few things, but I realized how blinded I am by being an American. At this point, I'm based in Berlin, and I sort of spent my a lot much of my life here as well, and in Europe. So, as a, as an American, as a New Yorker, even, and as a as as a Western European perspective. We have these judgments about right and wrong and corrupt and not corrupt and clean business and, you know, and, and the, the vast, vast majority of the world are trying to conduct their lives uh, under a very different set of constraints. If you are from China or Russia or anywhere on the African continent or South American continent, uh, the vast majority of the world um, in India, 
every there's just so much graft everywhere that the idea of doing having some kind of clean track record by some polished Western European or American standard, and then of course we're finding we don't uphold those either. But that that construct is absolutely imaginary for most of the world. It's just fascinating to learn how that really works in detail, in as much brutal and vivid detail as I have been exposed to in these past this past year or so. Yeah, I can imagine if you're interfacing directly with the family that's been affected to see it yeah. that up close and personal. Yeah. Somewhat. But it's, yeah, somewhat. I, I've been checking in with the family, but it's the interfacing with <laughs> digital forensics guys who are saying like, look at the evidence that was used to put these people in jail. This is like a 12-year-old would know better than to conduct themselves in this way. This is absolutely trampled on evidence. There's no way this should ever be able to be used against a person. And now we're living in an age where, you know, that's, that's such a weapon used to put people in office or, to, or keep people from being elected or how to just absolutely tear people down, have them thrown in jail. I mean, the, the, the protocols that are required to protect our conduct in this, in this part of the world, in this part of how our society operates, it just becomes very, very high stakes. And when you see it neglected to this degree, it's terrifying. Wow. Do you see this experience uh, working on this documentary? Is that compelling you to want to take on other investigative sort of tasks or do you think this will be your last one? I'm, I'm, I just, I tell you what, I love watching them. I, I kind of get, it's hard. I only really like watching great narratives, great, great works of fiction. I don't, I don't like just kind of binge watching stuff cause it's kind of exciting and it's, you know, pretty cool lead. And no, I, I need stuff to be I need, I need the fiction narrative work to be really good to, that's what I love to watch. I get really disappointed watching stuff that's not great. And, um, or, I, or I like to watch documentaries. Like I love watching them, but making them ain't my bag. It, really ain't, my, it, it ain't my thing. It's, it's a, um, yet, however, it has perhaps, it has definitely informed the way I would go about my narrative work. It's, um, I have a different way of, asking questions and a different way about trying to shed light on a, on a subject and all the fictional stuff I'm drawn to is of course very much paralleling world events and yeah troubling social conditions and uh, you know so it's not wildly it's not melt they're not much apart from each other you know yeah yeah wow well I think that's really awesome. I'd love to see that when it comes out. Hopefully, yeah. uh, you know, justice is served at the end of the day. Yeah, I'd like to think that it some in some some odd way or other, it, things come around. Um, it's sometimes hard. It's very easy to look at things more cynically and just. It's very easy to support either perspective that there is some kind of justice or that the. <sighs> 
you know, the, the people who, who try to just get ahead and play the system and play other people in any way they can for, for their own ends, um, that, that they walk scot-free and often run the world. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot to support that argument, but, um, yeah, I would like to think some kind of justice will prevail, um, mostly because of the absolute dedication to seeing it prevail on the part of the family and on my part and on the part of the people who are who have, who are as concerned as I am about about a system that is becoming more and more toxic all of the time and more and more tools are availed to people to to do harm in a way if that is their intent you know yeah absolutely do do you see this story that you're covering now as uh you know having some sort of relation to you know some of the concerns or problems that are happening politically in america as well well yeah it is. I mean, I think right now I'm in a certain journey where I'm looking. I think it's really important to look beyond our own borders because right now the world is getting so much smaller. And what's happening in, in Berlin is, is so close to what's happening in America. What's happening in the Saudi embassy in in Turkey is um, getting closer and closer to what's happening in America. And what you are doing right now, what you, Patrick, are doing right now, um, you get fucking killed for, bro, in most of the world. <laughs> most of the world, somebody would walk, somebody would burn your house down and you'd be in your pajamas collecting your family around you, watching your house burn, and somebody would walk up and say, well, that's the good news. That's, what, that, that's just a little warning. All right? I'm looking forward to hearing your next podcast. And, it, and if there is a next one, you'll see that that was as good as it's going to get. And that's a whole lot of the world. It's a yeah, whole well, lot I mean, of the world. Yeah, where if you're uh, actually, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, uh, the liberties that we sort of take for granted in the United States, it's hard to put in perspective unless you go and witness some of the events in other countries. Well, what it also does is then it starts shifting your perspective on what's happening around you. And because you start really paying attention to how a truly broken, um, and, and toxic judicial system that accesses the press as um, as as a a, a tool uh, a, a, as a device to do its bidding. <laughs> uh, you start seeing that, and then you start looking on the home front and getting a sense of what's happening in our time and the war on information that's happening in. In America, perhaps in a way that's, um, no, it's not the circumstances that I just described about your house burning. It, it's not, you're not trying to shake the tree in, in Nigeria. 
or and that there's a lot of places worse than that. Um, yeah, it it might not be the, you know, my in some cases you're seeing uh, in this war of information, you know, people their houses aren't being burnt down, but if they're being thrown off of different social media platforms or uh, being debased, then yeah, it, it's well, effectively the 21st century version of that. Yeah, and then and then things start happening in ways that are far far more Kafka esque and creepy, where, where where that becomes a very short degree of separation between tax agencies suddenly knocking on your door and being more curious than ever. Like when those start becoming an added dog on a leash of a. A, a, a really um, a, a, a toxic, desperate administration who is, God knows, God knows what these people have at their faculty, uh, you know, at their fingertips to, to, to make dissent of any kind really difficult and really uncomfortable. And at a time when you have the president of, of China sworn in for life and massive re-education camps um, where they're, they're picking up millions of people on the street and re-educating them in the province of Xinjiang, for example. Do you know anything about this? The Uyghurs? The Muslim, uh, Muslim China and what's happening? I mean, you're talking about incredibly powerful people who are consolidating more and more power and shifting the world's relationship to free information and to dissent more it's more about dissent that i'm talking about you know yeah has your experience you know in investigating this case and sort of you know uh, going down this rabbit hole has it changed your political leanings at all I don't know if it's changed my political leanings. Um, I'm a liberal person. I'm a liberal voter um, in general. Um, I wouldn't say across the board, but in general. Um, but it does have me questioning everybody. Everybody. Much more. I, I, there's so many more. I'm aware of so many more hidden agendas. There are so many um organizations and foundations which have a um sort of self-perpetuated myth of this halo over their head with incredibly um i'm trying to not talk in ways that are too vague but there are there are institutions out here and and foundations that really promote goodwill and transparency and freedom and freedom of information and and you'll often scratch the surface and see hmm those people have a whole lot of th those people also have political aims and political affiliations so um yeah it has affected i'm starting to question everything a little bit more that's all is there any takeaways that you have from your experience that you'd recommend for other people? You know, I love the idea, you know, of questioning, you know, questioning things, being more uh, open to looking into the hidden motives behind 
different decisions or different actions, anything that you'd, you know, recommend for people to, you know, set their mindset to? Yeah. Check the, check the criminal justice systems, check the world's criminal justice systems. There are people who get painted criminals and thrown behind bars and there are people who belong there, but there are so many, so, so many people in the world that are just thrown to the dogs and their, their lives and their reputations and their families are brutally tarnished. Um, and they, there's such, um, a lack of justice within the justice systems. And I think there's so much to, to just hear about the privatizing of the prison system, which is fabulous to have, uh, worked on Orange is the New Black and seeing their commentary on it. Um, to work, to be around Nick Sandow and uh, Jenner first, who put the whole uh, Time series together about Khalif Browder and seeing what happened to that kid as, a, as a, a peephole into what is happening in the American prison system. Um, and to see that those systems are actually becoming privatized and turned into a business. That's the scariest stuff. It's the scariest thing. And it's just to see how that's happening all over the world. Uh, I think it's really important. The watchdog organizations that try to illuminate this facet and this kind of tool of the state uh, are of great, great, great value. Such wow. as Penn, for example, uh, it's really important. Um, people people are branded criminals and branded terrorists and branded all these things just because someone who's got a little more weight to throw around is served by them being painted in this way. And there's so much of that. So yeah, these are scary times. I think that what you're doing though is really important. We have got to uh, we've got to keep intelligent conversations happening um we've got we've got to we've got to look a little bit deeper than what's on the front page sometimes you know yeah and it's very confusing seeing, yeah i i agree and i think we're seeing sort of an expansion in both directions it's scary times and then you know it's uh, you know people are very optimistic in other ways you know this uh format like long form conversations podcasts in general are you know growing a popularity every single day year over year and you know it, it allows people to be more informed on some of these different subjects and and hopefully it'll counteract yeah. the other negativity that we're seeing around us yeah to some degree i i, I would hope so but i and then i i just hope that it's funny i have a, I have a friend who was a, a a new york times front page editor for many years who was uh who, who, who basically was coming with, I, I would speak to this guy weekly, have a drink with him weekly, and he would talk about how the hierarchy at the New York Times is just how the standard of work is slipping and falling apart all the time. It's crumbling and not because, and it's basically the culture uh, that once supported news that's delivered in a certain way with a certain level of integrity is the fabric of that culture is falling apart. 
And um, there are people, you know what, I'm so, this is easily turning into, you know, pub chat, you and I at this point for, because not on your part, but on mine, Patrick, because I, there are people, I, you know, I have friends who are real players in the news world. I mean, serious photo editors and um, people who are just really plugged into information and, um, and the and news on a, a level that's so beyond me. I, I, I'm into my first nonfiction piece that happens to be about a heavy, multifaceted subject, but I'm really quite a newbie here. Uh, <laughs> I can talk with, gr with, with great um, conviction and clarity about how I help uh, narrative artists tell their stories. And I'm very lucky to have been working on projects that draw from the front pages as much as they do and have i'm really really fortunate but uh you know this who knows where prod taking on a project like this will take one's life you know god knows what up doors will open and which will close as a result you know is there consequences to our choices Absolutely. Well, I really commend you for the work that you're doing. I, I think it's really awesome to take on such a different kind of task than what you're used to and, and to share this story. So uh, please, you know, as soon as you, you know, have a release day, you got a title in mind, I'd love to share with the audience. And, um, you know, I know you're busy over there and, and, you know, it's probably getting pretty late. You're at. Yeah. Is there, is there, <laughs> I really appreciate your time today. Is there anything else that uh, you'd like to add before we wrap it up? I can't say there's anything. It's been a real satisfying exchange, Patrick. So thank you for making some time and inviting me to this forum. And uh, yeah, hopefully that this can be of some service to to your audience. And and no, not not really. Just keep on doing what you're doing, and uh, I'm I'm inspired by it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.